what did you expect? It's a simple and small and yet mighty question that you've likely been asked or have asked another. What did you expect? What did you expect in this season of life? What did you expect your relationships, your friendships, your partnerships to look like in this season of life? What did you expect this school year or degree program or career to look like now, today? What did you expect in your marriage? What did you expect your parents to be like today? What did you expect your children to be like, to grow up and do? What did you expect in regard to your health or your retirement? What do you expect or did you expect suffering to look like in this life? What did you expect? We can't help but ask the question because everyone in this room has expectations. And sometimes our expectations are met, right? Sometimes our expectations are utterly failed. Other times, our expectations are beautifully exceeded. Sometimes, much of the time, our expectations need to be tailored, adjusted, tethered to reality. And so I want to ask you this morning, what did or do you expect in this life? In regard to suffering, specifically, what did or do you expect? What did or do you expect of God? Has he met your expectations? Has he seemingly failed them? Has he completely and beautifully exceeded them? What expectations in your life today need to be adjusted? What expectations need to be adjusted in your faith and understanding of God and suffering this morning? Well, there was once a man named Job. And this man, Job, encountered undeserved and unthinkable suffering far beyond anything that you and I will likely ever experience. But it was through suffering that his expectations of life and of God were in many ways turned around and flipped upside down. And there's so much more, so much that we can learn about God, his redemptive purposes in and through our suffering, as well as our own expectations in the conclusion of Job's story. So if you have your Bible, please turn with it, turn in it to Job chapter 42. Job 42. Uh, if you go to the center of your Bible, to the Psalms, and you hang a, a left, you will safely arrive at Job. There's no shame in using 
the table of contents this morning if you have to. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under a chair near you. If you do not own a Bible, please take that Bible with you at the end of the service today, the one that's below a chair near you. You can find Job on page 389. Well, in this message this morning, we are going to, Lord willing, bring our series in this book to a close. As we look at Job's conclusions together in chapter 42, verses 7 through 17. Chapter 42, 7 through 17. Please follow along as I read. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Nemethite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapak. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work through this passage this morning. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit now to turn the lights on in our dim hearts and minds. We ask that we would behold your glory in the face of Jesus this morning. May the lips of my mouth, the words of my mouth, and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray, amen, amen. Well, to guide our time together, here is the the big idea. The big idea of Job 42, verse 7 through 17, it's this, in the end, suffering is a passageway to deep relationship with God and deep restoration from God. In the end, suffering is a passageway to deep relationship with God in verses 7 through 9 and restoration from God in verses 10 through 17. 
So, point one, in the end, suffering is a passageway to deep relationship with God. Well, back in the first message in Job, way back, way back in January, I mentioned that my family and I woke up one morning to a beautiful sunrise here in Edgewood. The colors were astounding. They were out of this world. It was nuts and beautiful. It was a pure evidence of God's kindness. But what seemed like a brief moment, a thick fog rolled in and eclipsed the sun. It eclipsed all of the color of that day. And it got darker and darker as the sun became more and more hidden. And this is metaphorically similar to the life of Job. At the beginning of the story, we read that the sun is out in Job's life. He's blessed. He's a blameless, upright, good, godly, prospering man. He's called the servant of God, not only by the narrator of Job, but also by God himself. It's pretty astounding. It's clear that God's smile is upon him. But then the fog rolls in, and all hell breaks loose in Job's life when Satan is permitted to test Job's faith, to sift Job with an undeserved suffering, and sift he does. Job loses everything. In a three-part test in Job 1 through the first part of chapter 2, he loses all of his livelihood, all his children, all of his health, and Satan is sure that Job will curse God if he loses his possessions, his prosperity, his protection, and his physical health. But Job is vindicated time and time and time again as he holds fast to God by faith. Alas, the fog settles in Job's life. And we see in the conversational poetry from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 38 that Job is far from perfect as he wrestles and doubts and challenges and questions God. In those chapters, he laments to God and limps along with his misguided friends through the fog of pain. But brothers and sisters, there is light behind every shadow. There is a sun behind, a sun hidden behind every dark day. And in the midst of the dark fog of Job's life, light bursts forth. In chapter 38, God speaks and meets him where he is. And though God doesn't answer all of Job's questions, nor ours, he gives something to Job that's even greater in the midst of his pain. He gives Job himself his word, his presence. And God reminds him and all saints and sufferers that he is sovereign, that he rules and reigns over every bright and dark circumstance of our lives and that he has and will have the final word over darkness, over evil, over the Leviathan of Job 41, Satan himself. And what is Job's response to all of this in chapter 42, verses one through six? Awe. Silence, reverence, humble repentance toward God. And then we arrive at our passage this morning. And we just read 
Like light at the end of a dark passageway, the sun in Job's life becomes brighter and brighter once again as the fog dissipates and the Lord continues to speak. In chapter 42, verses 7 through 9, look there with me again, 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Here we see God turn his attention away from Job toward the friends, toward Eliphaz and his other two guys, Bildad and Zophar. And the text says that God is angry toward them. Why? Because they did not speak rightly of him. Now, if you remember in those previous chapters, the friends say many, many, many things to Job, right? And many of those things were true and right about who God is. They spoke of God's character, his holiness, justice, wisdom, might, power, care, and control over the world. And Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, as well as Elihu, mentioned, not mentioned here, they were partially right in their understanding of God and his word and his world. And yet over and over and over again, they miss Job's boat. They misunderstand and they misdiagnosed his situation. They believed that he was guilty, that he was reaping what he had sown. Their message was shockingly similar to the prosperity preachers of today. Hey, Job, if you do well and you give well and you live well and you keep yourself from all sin, well, then you're going to be hashtag blessed. Here in verse 7, we read that these friends and their message ultimately miss and miss the, the main idea of Job's situation. They misunderstand God. Now, God doesn't give us specifics here. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't give us specifics where the friends went wrong. But he's clear that they got him wrong. And they revealed, this reveals, that they didn't truly know him. They did not have a true relationship with him. But humbled and justified Job, who was called God's servant here in verse 7, got him right. Even though he doubted and challenged and questioned God in his suffering, Job came to see God and know God in a greater way and a deeper way through suffering. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the lesson here from Job and his miserable and misguided friends? Well, the way we speak about God matters. The way we think about God and the way he governs the world matters. Our posture toward God and what we say to others about God in the midst of the circumstances of our lives matters. See, the friends reveal that we can know many things about God and not actually, truly know God. We can have great theology and not know the great God of that theology. 
Church, the words that we speak to God and about God toward others reveal whether we truly know him and have a relationship with him. And so this passage ought to be a caution light to us. Taking this a step further, I want to land this in the pavement of our lives. So at a personal level, here are some questions, some things for us to think through about rightly speaking about God. Generally speaking, in joyful and heavy situations, how do you speak about God, his character, and his purposes? Brother or sister, when you speak about God, do you rightly balance his holiness and his love, his justice and his compassion, his wrath and his mercy? Or do you emphasize one aspect of God over another and not speak rightly of him or counsel rightly? Spouses and parents, how do you speak about God to one another on the bright days and the bitter days of your life together? Children, yeah, children in this room, how do you speak about God to your friends at school or to your siblings at home? No matter who you are, are you revering him in the way you speak? Are you accurately and in a balanced way speaking about the character of God? Pressing down a little further, I I believe this passage also informs the way we think about our intake and diet of Christian media. I mean, what comes in goes out. So what does your spiritual diet look like? We should be careful with what we watch, listen to, and read. So do the preachers and teachers you watch on YouTube or TV or the Christian music that you listen to or the books that you read or the Christian shows that you watch, does the message that they convey sound more like Job's friends or Job? You should be careful. We should ask, does this accurately line up with God's word? Or is this person or song using scripture like a drunk person uses a lamppost? I'm just going to lean on it a little bit. We've got to use discernment. Pressing down to the life and ministry of our church, one of the goals of the preaching ministry here at EBC is to equip you with ways to speak about God rightly. This is why we teach out of the Bible, why we exposit books of Scripture. So you walk away not with our words in your head and heart, but God's word in your head and heart. This also applies to the songs that we sing. We aim to select and sing songs here at EBC that are rich with God's word, that rightly proclaim his character and his purposes and our right response to him. Words matter. Lyrics matter. The message matters. What we sing about God matters. This is also why we aim to assist and provide biblical and sound resources to all the ministries here in the life of our church. So pulling it all together, no matter the situation in your life, inside or outside the church, bottom line, here's the bottom line. We should go to God's word for clarity and language to speak about God rightly. We have a book called Job 
We can go to Job and learn how to speak about God rightly, how to not speak about him rightly. Let's specifically go to Jesus in the Gospels. He models for us what it is to speak about the Father and the Spirit in all seasons rightly. And then let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to protect our hearts and our minds and to guard our mouths and guide our words so that we might speak of him rightly and apply God's word rightly to the situations of our lives. We're pressing further on into verses 8 through 9. Because of the mistakes that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar made, God in his righteous anger uh, could have just smite these guys. He could have just written them out of the script, you know, to answer them in their folly with vengeance. But God makes a way out of no way for them to reenter right relationship with him. Look with me again at verses 8 and 9. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Here God tells the friends to uh, go to Job and also offer seven bulls and seven rams, 14 total sacrifices. And this is significant because the number seven means completion in Scripture. So God is asking these guys not to do just seven sacrifices, but 14 sacrifices, double the number of completion. And he tells them to go to his servant Job for prayer and for intercession. They do. Job prays. God accepts and restores them. Well, there are a handful of observations and applications that we should make here. So first, in the introduction, in the prologue of the book, we see Job interceding, interceding for who? His children. He's interceding and praying for his children, sacrificing for them. See, part of Job's role in life was priestly. He was the blameless and upright man who interceded for others. This should not be lost on us. Job is a type of Jesus. He's a shadow of Jesus, the great high priest, who according to Hebrews chapters 4 and 7, sympathizes with our weakness and who is able to save to the uttermost us who draw near to God through him. And he always is making intercession for us. Job not only points to Jesus, the suffering servant, but also to Jesus, the great high priest, the perfect mediator that stands in heaven between Satan and God on our behalf and intercedes for us day and night. Amen? It's amazing. Second, this text displays the power of prayer. God is sovereign over all things, and still the Lord desires what? Prayer. Still desires prayer. He desires for us to converse with him. He desires for us to intercede for others, no matter the outcome. And think about this. Sometimes we read the text a little too fast, and we, we miss these things. But how amazing is it that God can be so majestic, so great, and so beyond our comprehension, and so transcendent, and yet so personal and intimate here in these verses. So near to Job 
near to him as a sufferer. And make no mistake that he is near to all who are brokenhearted. He is near to all who are weak. So let's learn from Job to draw near to God through prayer. Do you want greater communion with God? Do you desire to be near him with a deeper trust, a deeper faith? Do you desire to have a more intimate covenant relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Then go to God in prayer. Take your struggles to him, your suffering to him. Make intercession and take other struggles and suffering to him. He will not turn you away nor leave you. You Pick up our prayer guide that Pastor Jeff mentioned earlier. Make notes in it. Make intercession for others, your fellow members here at EBC, here in this church. Go to God in prayer. May we be a people of prayer that sees suffering not the dark circumstances of our lives, not as opponents, but as opportunities to pray and enter deeper communion and relationship with God. Third, suffering either drives us toward God or away from God, and there are only two directions. These verses make it clear that Job has grown closer to God. Did you notice that he is called the servant of God four times in these verses? Four times. Once in verse 7, three times in verse 8. The narrator is making a point. In the midst of all that has happened and, and said by Job in this book thus far, he is still God's man. He is still God's servant who belongs to him. And this title reveals that through the good and the bad and the ugly of this book, that even in the valley of the shadow of death, Job has been in relationship with God the whole time and has been led into deeper relationship with God through suffering, and this is made clear in Job's priestly intercession and communion with God. And it's fully revealed there in verse 9 where we read, the Lord accepted Job's prayer. We ought to see this as a clear sign that Job was God's friend. And that in the end, the passageway of suffering led Job into deeper relationship with God. God accepted him and accepted prayer from him. In the words of one pastor, the book of Job is is a book about how God treats his friends. God's dealing with us, his dealings with us, and with Job, leads to deeper friendship, deeper relationship, deeper communion with God, but also deep restoration from God. And that leads us to point two. In the end, suffering is a passageway to deep restoration from God. Let's look at the closing seven verses once again. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. 
Yet he had also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapik. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This picture of restoration is beautiful, isn't it? It's glorious. After Job heard God and saw him with the eyes of his heart, renounced his foolishness, revered him in humility, and prayed for his friends, as it said in those previous verses, God pours out. He poured out a cup of grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing on Job. We read, verse 10, that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. That phrase is pregnant with Old Testament truth. That phrase is actually used over 25 times, or it's alluded to over 25 times in Scripture. And it is a truth that reveals God's restorative and redemptive character after a season of exile or suffering. We see this in the life of God's people all over Scripture. And here it proves that Job was right back in chapter 1, that it is the Lord that gives away, gives and takes away according to his sovereign grace alone, that he holds the whole world in his hand and that he rebuilds what is broken in abundant ways. That's what we see here. In verse 10, the Lord gives double, twice as much to Job. And then there's a family reunion. In verse 11, brothers and sisters come to eat with him, to show sympathy to him, to comfort him after all the evil that God permitted to come upon him. And they gift money to him and precious goods. And the conclusion continues. Verse 12, he receives double the livestock. Double what's mentioned in the beginning of the book. Double the sheep, double the camels, double the oxen, double the donkeys. And he's given the gift of more children. Verses 13 through 15, seven sons, three daughters, Jemima, Keziah, and Karen Hapik. Side note, these names are interesting. Jemima is, means dove. Keziah is like a perfume. While Karen Hapik unfortunately means a bottle of eye shadow. Not a coincidence since she's the first Karen of the Bible. But we should note that out of this double inheritance that Job has received, generous Job gives his children an inheritance. There is specific mention here of, of Job preparing his daughters for suffering and for widowhood by giving them an inheritance. This is an amazing picture of unique generosity, care and love in that day. And it once again shows, it highlights the godly character of Job. And then we read, verse 16, that Job lives another 140 years and sees four generations, four generations of his lineage. And then Job dies a desirable death after he is old and full of days. In these verses, God restores to Job. He restores him spiritually, physically, financially, economically. This is the happy ending, the happily ever after, that is similar to the happy conclusion of that classic film, It's a Wonderful Life, 
where all is well in George Bailey's life, with family and friends and support all around him. But I wonder how you feel and think about this this conclusion. Does it comfort you? Or does it kind of bother you? Does it confuse you? Or does it bring resolve, weight lifted, joy? Does it meet your expectations of life, of suffering, and of God? Maybe you're thinking, hmm, good story. 40 chapters of complete devastation, tacked on restoration. It's quite the imbalance, quite the disparity. Maybe you're thinking, why does this restoration even come? It would be better if it just ended with God's glorious presence, Job's humble response, the end. Or maybe you're thinking, where's my restoration? Where's my happy ending? Do you see me, God, and the others who suffer around me? Look at the world, God. Do you see the pain? Do you see the suffering? Do you see the suffering that I've gone through with, with loss? You may be asking. Do you see the, the suffering that I've endured with wayward children? Or an unbelieving spouse? Or my depression and anxiety? Or my chronic health issues? It just seems like you're hiding God. I wonder how you think about this ending of Job. Well, what do we do with it? What should we do with it? we, We need to be clear. These verses do not diminish Job's suffering in any way. These verses are not meant to tie a a pretty bow on a very ugly situation. They're not meant to make neat and tidy what has been so not neat and tidy for the majority of the book. So further, what do we do with these final verses in the context of the whole book? And how does that inform us in our own passageway of suffering? Expectations in this life. Well, first, Job is not receiving this restoration because he finally repented of some sort of hidden sin. This would confirm the bad prosperity logic of his misguided friends who essentially said, well, Job, you're reaping bad because you've done bad, but now you're reaping good because you're doing good. Now, Job has repented, but it was not for hidden sin. It was because he recognized his misunderstanding of God's wisdom and will and way, and he was humbled before his all-wise and sovereign God. Second, Job is not receiving this restoration because he deserves it. Like somehow we all deserve a happy ending after suffering comes in our lives. We all deserve a a positive outcome. This is not an everybody gets a a trophy theology here at work in the book of Job. Third, Job is not receiving this restoration because God has failed the test presented by Satan back in chapters 1 and 2. And God is now making restitution, some sort of divine reparation for a mistake made. This can't be. 
because Job is precisely encountering undeserved suffering because he is upright and godly and has withstood the test of faith. Fourth, Job is not receiving this restoration because he just needs to learn to have more faith. Just needs to learn how to name it and claim it and to manifest a different reality. No, Job is receiving this restoration because God is a God of deep faithfulness, of deep grace, and of deep restoration. This ending shows that suffering does not have the last word in Job's life, nor our own. God has the last word, and it is a word of restoration. And though God may appear absent or complacent or even malicious in our permitted suffering, he is faithful and will always restore the humble and the faithful in this life or the next In suffering big or small, he will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Joel 2.25. He will be the restorer of life, just as he did the life of Naomi in Ruth 4.15. He will restore the fortunes of those who are his. And in the end, the life of Job shows us that deep restoration from God often comes through the passageway of deep suffering the refining fire of deep pain. I was reading of an illustration earlier this week about an evergreen pine tree called the lodgepole pine. It is seen in great numbers in Yellowstone Park and in forests throughout the U.S. And the cones of the lodgepole pine will hang on the tree for many years. And even when they fall and hit the ground, they don't crack open. The cones can only be opened when they come in contact with intense heat. And God has a purpose for planting it this way. When a forest fire rages and trees are destroyed, entire forests are destroyed, at the same time, the heat of the fire opens up the cones of the lodgepole pine. And these pines are often the first trees to grow, the first vegetation to return to a burned area. They repopulate and bring life in the midst of death. They bring restoration after devastation. Similarly, like the cone or the lodgepole pine, in the life of the Christian, it is the heat of adversity in tests of faith and seasons of deep pain that open and deepen our faith in God. Nothing does this like suffering. Nothing does that like suffering. And no other means can produce endurance and patience and perseverance and steadfastness in us. This is the point made in James. In James 5, 7 through 11, the passage that was read earlier. In many ways, in that passage, the Spirit, through the hand of James, teaches us a better way to read our Bible We are to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And James tells us that Job was made by God an example of patient steadfastness through suffering. He writes, James 5 verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, who have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
The story and restoration of Job is to display the compassion and mercy of God. And for us to learn from another saint and sufferer what it is to suffer well. And what it is to suffer in a steadfast and persevering way so that we may learn the paradox of the Christian life. In the Valley of Vision, a beloved collection of Puritan prayers, the opening prayer says this, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that the valley is the place of vision. Steadfast Job is a picture of this. And so the book of Job teaches us that we should all expect the valleys, the dark passageways, that we should expect the way down if we're Christians, that we should expect suffering, but that we should also expect that the valley is not the destination, but a passageway to perseverance and restoration. There's another key part to understanding the ending of Job, and James helps us get there. In the surrounding context of James 5, James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Two times in that passage, James writes of the coming of the Lord. So connecting this to the life of Job, there's a lesson for us. So stay, stay with me here. Back in Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, Job declared, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. See, the first... The, the persevering Job of chapter 19 is the same persevering Job of chapter 42. And who is his redeemer? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Job was looking forward to a redeemer. He was waiting for one who would come to restore and redeem all things in his first and second coming. And so connecting the dots from Job to James to Jesus this earthly double completion, this restoration that we see here at the end of the book of Job is a picture of restoration that has come in part in this life and will fully come when Christ returns. When Jesus, the one who came to this earth as a sinless savior, the one who patiently endured death on a cross as a sufferer, the one who was raised to new life in resurrection and was restored by the Father in order to make sinners and sufferers saints and sufferers. And through him, full and final restoration is promised to every Christian who repents and believes and places their trust in him no matter what happens in this life. And because of Christ's resurrection, we will experience resurrection. Amen? Because of Christ's restoration, we will experience restoration on the last day. On the last day when Christ returns. If you're here today and you have not repented and believed in Jesus, if, you, if your suffering is meaningless, you're searching for a relationship and restoration in something, 
and someone, but just cannot seem to find it, then look no further than Jesus. Look no further than Jesus. If you have questions about him, his work, what it means for this life and the next, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love nothing more than to speak with you about Job's Redeemer, about my Redeemer, about the Redeemer of every Christian in this room. You can come find me or find another pastor or find someone around you. Don't leave this place today without talking with someone about Jesus. But Christian, the work of Jesus in the gospel transfigures the way we suffer. It, it changes the way we also walk with others in the midst of their suffering. The gospel gives us eternal hope in present darkness. Do you believe that? Earlier this year, I was asked, you've experienced some deep suffering in your life. How are you doing and dealing with it? I responded with an encouragement I received from a faithful brother and pastor that I can now, by God's grace, pass on to you. In preparation of dark circumstances with the Lord's help, I lift my eyes and envision the last day, the day of eternity with Christ. And whatever the situation I have been in or am in or am heading into, big or small, can't help but seem so momentary in light of that day. Brothers and sisters, may we live with eternity in view. May we expect and endure suffering with eternity in view, knowing that our momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. The conclusion of Job's life shows us this. And in the end, Job's redemption and restoration is a picture of the eschatological glory of Jesus' return. A glory that every Christian experiences in this life dimly, but will fully experience when he returns and brings us into glory with him. And on that day and in that place, suffering will cease forevermore. Every ear, every tear will be wiped from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have fully passed away. This is the promise of Revelation 21. But until that day in light of the restoration that has come in Christ and the final restoration that we're still waiting for in Christ, brothers and sisters, we can trust God. We can trust him. On the bright days when the sun is out and on the dark days when it is hidden. And on those days we can rest. In all circumstances we can rest in the truth that ultimately God has the final word over those who are his. So Christian, we don't have to be surprised by suffering. We can learn to expect it and grow from it and learn to patiently endure in it.
all while knowing that the passageway of suffering will give way to deep relationship with God and deep restoration from God, for he is working all things together for our good. All things. And he will hold us fast. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, your grace and your mercy revealed in the Son, Jesus. We thank you for your love displayed in him. We thank you that it is he who walked the path of suffering ahead of us. We also thank you for restoring him so that we may one day taste and see the same restoration. We look forward to that day, and until then, we pray, Lord, come quickly. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.